0: Hell of Black Episode Ninety Seven. On this episode, we sit down with Sheikh Hashim Ali, and we talk about the role that Islam has played on Black revolutionary movements throughout the world. It's a real dope episode where me and DeWensey is really able to take a, a learning stance and really listen and learn um, about the, the role that Islam has played. And shout out to my brother Lef, you feel me, Amir, for making this happen and producing this episode. So tap in with our Patreon, Patreon.com/HellBlackPod. Fuck with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, you feel me? Show some love. Hello Black, you feel me? Back at it again. Episode 97, man. We getting close to that Hundo, I was man. Just about to say, that Hundo clip, man. we going finna let that uh, day yeah. leech, nigga. <laughs> I'm
1: I, I would have never thought, bro. I, it's, I can't remember every episode, but I can remember most of them. And if you would have told me the first time we ever did our first one in Rock Studio, that we might make it to episode 100, you know, some two years later. And I also used to think that these was something that we could just crank out one after another. Yeah. And that's
0: not the not case. Not the case at all with podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild, bro. I still remember walking out, and asking me, like, hey, bro, I'm trying to do this podcast? I was like, I don't really know what the podcast is besides the app. Yeah. Yeah. Nigga, we got to shake it. We we man, stuck you know? through
1: it, bro. When you think about the 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 work that got to go into this shit, the different relationships and communal aspects of the pod that we've been able to build, um, a hundred is that's 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 a mark of the grind, bro. And hopefully, we got a hundred more in us,
0: you know. Yeah, gonna keep it pushing. Uh, it's definitely another conversation that I'm, I'm juiced to have, excited to have, and, and kind of another uh full circle type of moment. You know, uh, we got Sheik Hashem Ali on the line with us, you know, uh, and we go back to Berkeley together, you know what I'm saying? We worked on a couple of events together when I was at Cal as a student and stuff, and, uh, you know, my OG is left, and you, uh, you you, left's OG, you feel me? So we got the OGs, you know, coming on, hella black, and I'm, I'm juiced for that, man. How you doing today?
2: I'm maintaining. I'm glad to hear that you guys getting to 100. Uh... You know, I don't. I'm like you, Blake. I didn't know too much about podcasts. Somebody hit me with uh, you know, I work with Jalen Brown, play with Celtic, right? And somebody said, Hey, man, we're gonna do a podcast with him. Um, with some dude named Bill Simmons. I'm like, I not know what the hell it was. So they said, Hey, go on your little app, press the button, and you'll see and I'm like, okay, it was on my phone, so you know, I'm happy. This is actually my first podcast. So, uh,
1: oh, that's a blessing, straight uh, up. I've yeah, never I'm done glad. it before.
2: And, um, I look forward, but, you know, I'm feeling y'all energy right now, man. Yeah, y'all energy, so I'm with it, with it you know. And I, like I said, I've been doing Amir uh, left since he was 12, so he wasn't left back then. He was just stubborn-ass Amir, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> my basketball league, and you know, uh always mad at me and stuff. So I've been, you know, in you know, fact, I'm his OG, and y'all his OG. That made me a double OG today.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, am uh, Amir helped us come up with this episode, you know, idea, and he helped kind of produce it, too. So Fully you know, produced it. We can't say kind of. We got okay. um, to right. fully we produce great. it. Left produced this episode, period. <laughs> Left okay. produced this shit. Right. <laughs> so And I, I'm glad we're going to have this conversation. Um, you know, we was uh, talking to Jaleel maybe a, a couple episodes ago, and then, you know, Left was like, bro, this would be a, a great follow-up conversation um, uh-huh. to the, the conversation we were at with Jaleel we started talking about spirituality, and, you know, how we converted to uh, Islam in prison and whatnot. And, um, you know, the more I've been studying Islam, the more I've been, you know, realizing how much of the principles of Islam is also like principles of revolution, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but can you, you know, just introduce introduce yourself a little bit, um, right. talk about some of the things you've done and then we'll hop right into the interview.
2: All right, uh, I don't really like talking about myself, but just, you know, GP that we have the conversation is a little easier. Um, you know, I went to, I'm from Richmond, California. Uh, I went to UC Berkeley in 1990, oh shit, 87. Uh, first went, to, but I went to Contra Costa first, right? But since we're talking about spirituality, I kind of just tied in. I just mentioned I tied in with my journey. I'm, I was always a religious person, believing God, right? And, um, my family in Richmond was religious people. Uh, my father is Japanese and Italian. So I had a Catholic background and a Buddhist background from him. And my mother was African-American, Christian, but she raised me. Uh, after I was through the high school I applied to go to St. John's University um, in New York and went there to be a priest now you might wonder why did I go to St. John's and I told my son this because he's 19 I said the dumbest thing I did was choose my college based on a freaking rap song so in run DMC he said I went to St. John's University I like, shit I'm going to St. John's you know? <laughs> you know, I was influenced by the hip hop right New York was popping hip hop was popping so I was like get out there so I don't know if y'all ever been out in New York, right? So I flew out there, got me a little spot in um, uh, Jamaica, Queens, and I stayed with this family that was Panamanian. So the first problem was I'm dealing with them. I'm calling my mom. I'm like, hey, man, these niggas, part, man, these niggas over here eating fish with, with the eyes in this shit. You know what I'm saying? Oh my <laughs> they got beans with like rocks and shit, you know, black beans. I didn't ever see that. But I did with Cuba. I said, mom, these, these motherfuckers, they fried some bananas. Who the hell fried bananas, right? So I said because coming from California, I didn't know nothing about plantain and you know. What I'm saying, about to say was they
0: bananas or was they plantains? <laughs> it looked
2: like a banana. I mean, I don't know what a plantain. Is, think it was a banana. <laughs> I thought these things a fried cereal or something. Like, I don't what Like, what is this? And then I went to school. Eleven days, and I remember I got on the bus. I'm trying to get the hundred. I remember was like maybe, I was trying to get to 169th and Jamaica Avenue, right? So I'm trying to catch the bus. I'm walking. I see this girl get up and say, hey, how do I get to 169 in Jamaica? She said, follow me. I'm going that direction. So when we start walking, I say, hey, he said, hey, so what's up? She's your name. She stopped. Look, nigga, you don't know me. Just follow me. I'm like, oh, now, wait a minute. This is this, a different approach, man. The women was aggressive. So the weather was hot. I couldn't breathe. The women was tripping. Man, for some reason, man, something told me, man, go back home. And 11 days later, I got on a plane, man. It was back to Contra Costa College in Richmond, man. At contra Costa, richmond i said god i want to be a priest maybe that's not the right way i'm going to search every religion on the face of the earth right major religions not majorly religion, non-traditional and find out which way you want me to serve it. i already believe in god i just didn't know how to serve it. and then i found this books on islam and you know became muslim and after that i transferred to uc berkeley and um when i got to cal i started majoring in islamic studies with hamid al who you know, he knows 27 languages. So he's the most foremost in the world of Islam. But the killer was Haman al was a British white man. So I was like, wait a minute, man. I, read, I, read, the, I read The Audubon from Malcolm X and Siddhartha. Those are two main books helped in, in my journey. And a lot of people say, Why did, how did Siddhartha by Herman Hesse look about Buddha? How did that become your book of guidance? And I tell everybody because Buddha never said be a Buddhist. Buddha said make a journey and find your truth. So everybody got to find everybody got to do their quest find their truth. So that's how my religious things start happening. And then, but Malcolm was, you know, he. I tell people all the time that Malcolm's autobiography is not just about politics and blackness; it's about a journey of a man from through all this darkness to finding his light. You know, and um, it's interesting. I would love to hear more. And I'm I listen to how Jalil and a lot of people who I talk to, they do get attached to Malcolm's blackness, but they also see that his journey that he went step by step, and he never was afraid to say he was wrong. Most people be like, "Man, I'm wrong." I ain't going to say, well, Malcolm changed and kept growing. And so when I got to Berkeley, I just started growing. And I met people. I became the president of Black Students over there. Um, And in 1990, I started a basketball program called the Oakland Soldiers, which was a Black Panther-style organization where we used basketball as a way of mentoring and giving back to the Black community. And it's been going for 30 straight years. I mean, LeBron played in it. I coach Chauncey Billups. And so, you know, from there... I went into the basketball world and mentoring basketball players. I've been an NBA agent. I've been overseas, I've studied Islamic studies and I got a bunch of little things in between, but that's, that's just me and a gist, man. Just, you know, giving back spiritually to the community.
0: Bro, you just say like, oh yeah, that's just me and the gist. Like, you ain't a legend, bro. Like, that's some legendary thing, <laughs> like, legend, bro, I'm, like, I'm a- <laughs> I'm looking at the impact that you've had on me that I didn't even know
1: you had. You know, he, you
2: know, let me hear that. I love to hear
1: first that. First time ever speaking to you, man. Like I got, I got families that 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 play for the soldiers. Wow,
2: uh, wow.
1: Yeah, my my um my little, I got my older cousin Juno Thomas, and then I who who oh, was, Juno Juno. Yeah, that, that's my older cousin Clarence. Clarence uh, Clarence is my my great uncle.
2: Wow, course, wow. My, my is, that's
1: yeah, my little cousin Jameer. I never knew the.
2: Where's Jamir now?
1: Uh He has city. Yeah, okay,
2: COVID messed everything up, doing Everything. So let's get, yeah. You this. Okay, let's get you
1: okay, Yeah, he had city, but I never really knew the um the political stance that was attached to the to the to the Oakland soldiers. I, I never I never knew that.
2: Nah, uh, the, 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 the Panthers that, that they had so, the first thing. So what happened was my man Calvin, who actually works for Clutch sports now, LeBron's agent. Mm-hmm. He was in college. My cousin uh, Quentin Youngblood was a star player, but he wasn't getting no love from the Bay. You know, so. I ended up going down to LA and I started coaching with the Slammer Jam team that had Harold Miner, John Staggers, all these top cats. And I got turned out, like, oh man, this is it. So I liked the basketball, but I was mentoring kids. So I said, you know what though? We got to use the mentor kids. So the first name, the Open Soldiers, so you can learn the history, was not called Open Soldiers. It was the Richmond Soldiers. And I got a picture of it. And on our logo was Huey P. Newton with a shotgun and uh, with a shotgun. That was our logo on our uniform. That's that's nuts. <laughs> that is nuts. <laughs> no. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, people, a lot of people don't know it. So that's how we start the Soldiers, man. And so here's another tidbit. So I was cool with Pop. And um, I was in the studio when he made his first album. And me and Dion took, I said, look, dude, on the real, I need a theme song for my team to open Soldiers. We like the Panthers, you know what I'm saying? We going to be Panthers and teach the kids black history and all this and everything. And so, Pac came up with the song "Soldier Story" on his first album. So, a lot of people don't know that history right there. You know, so we predated that.
0: <laughs> Man, we five minutes in and just getting history on history. That's why I was so juiced for this conversation because I knew there was just gonna be so much history that you know isn't you know mainstream or hasn't you know been talked about. You feel me? Uh, yeah. As much as it needs to be. You know, bro, that that that's the theme of
1: of Oakland and the Bay Area in general. Like, I feel like it's so much that happened here it'd be hard to fully know everything, bro. Like, I feel like I know a lot about the Bay Area history. And even over the last year, like, talking to my
2: elders, I'm like, damn, I don't know shit. And then, <laughs> hey, man, I got, hey, I got this thing. You can't get famous unless you come through the yay, baby. I mean, it's facts. I mean, shit, Prince's first album was made in Sassalew. He came through the Bay. You know what I mean? Tupac came through the Bay, right? Shit, if you watched the All-Star game last night, Jalen had 22 from Cal. Steph played for the Warriors had twenty eight and Dame Dame Lillard from town had thirty five. Come on now, man! The Bay Area was record, record, recognizing him in, in, in the All Star game last night.
0: That's just what it is. That's where the sauce <laughs> at. <laughs>
2: yeah. And I, for me, call my Panther Club. i i bring it back to the Panthers. You know what I'm saying? Because they lace the Bay Area with a, a dynamic that is so touching to every place, everywhere. You know, I remember we have Soldier Town now that's over by Lady College, and I took Bobby in there. I said, Bobby, I want you to realize, man, your inspiration inspired all of this, and he loved it. He's like, "Thank you." I said, because everybody talk about the guns and all that. Hey, man, the it Panthers was about building community. And sometimes, you know, we look at TV and movies and everything, and then you see the guns and all that. Hey, man, we forget about the feeding breakfast. Like, when y'all out there feeding people, Blake doing the, the food, that's that, that's that's Panther shit.
0: <laughs> you 100%. know what I'm saying? And
2: we got to keep that one on it because. The rest of the world don't know that the social political aspects of the Panthers was to build community. And that's what we got to always remind, them, like even the podcast show. I like to just, you know, look, anytime I can share somebody about building community in the history to make that connect, because y'all connect connection go back to us, back to Malcolm, back to the first slaves that came on a slave ship. And You know, this is this is a unified struggle. This is nothing that's protractically separated. And I think that's what they're doing today. They're separating the struggle and keeping it from its roots
0: thousand percent because like when we know the history we see how the struggle has always been interconnected from generation to generation yes. torches have been passed you know from, from generation to generation um uh, so you know what would you say is the role of Islam and, and how it's um played out in black revolutionary movements and the movements you oh, know way question. into today.
2: I would say so I can talk Islam is, is and see I'm I'm theologian. I consider myself a theological I study on religions so as you tell right I, I, when I say Islam, I'll talk about Islam in the dynamics of the African um, expression. But as a whole, I would say Islam is a is a revolutionary movement globally in all cultures. One. But then I'll go further back and say, for us as Muslims, all the prophets, whether it was Moses or Jesus, you know, some people say Buddha could a prophet. We believe that there are prophets at every world, everywhere in the world. Every culture had a prophet. There's only one God, so he sent messengers all and prophets around the world. Is uh, prophets around the world, and they all had the same message. And that message is a revolutionary message to make the world a place for spiritual and mental and physical growth. So I say that to say, we can talk about the dynamic in the African diaspora struggle, um, but just to set the record straight, I see that God's movement is, you know, even before Islam, all cultures had God and been sending people to revolutionally bring about change in the world.
0: A thousand percent. So how would you say, you know, it pertains to, you know africans here living in america okay. you know i know one thing you know left put me on you know back in 2015 when i was taking this class he was talking about you know some of the first enslaved africans were was missing. Yeah.
2: so yeah. i wrote a paper for my doctor in my phd program on it was called literacy as a form of resistance and i was showing how um from south america central america to america that Muslim African slaves played a prominent role in, in, in uprisings against the colonial powers and the slave masters, right? Uh, we'll start south and our way north. So one of the biggest ones was Brazil. So in Brazil, a lot of the um, Nigerian Muslims, they came there and they raised the biggest revolution to create change and change out um, Brazil. There's a movie you can check out called Quililumbo. Quilombo is a beautiful movie. It's about how all the Africans rose up in the jungles and what happened was they would go capture the other slaves down on the plantation and bring it up to the jungle. But the jungle was, was similar to Africa, so they knew how to navigate through the jungle. So they would grab the slaves of different tribes. And then they would grab, actually, it's funny, the prostitutes who were brought from Europe to serve the Portuguese, they didn't like being prostitutes. They ran up to the Quilombo, too. So you had these white prostitutes, white poor people ran up there. Everybody came to this Muslim compound called the Quilombo. And then what ended up happening is, the movie shows it brilliantly, every culture had their own different dynamics, right? And they would celebrate their victories. And so when they celebrated, each culture would perhaps celebrate according to their own cultural dynamics. And as you know, that is what today? That is called Carnival. Carnival was started with ex, ex-slaves who were based on Muslim revolutionaries to who let everybody express their own cultural dynamics in celebrating the victory against the Portuguese. And so when you study the North African numbers, Bahia, you'll see the biggest slave revolts were made by Muslim slaves there. And, you know, they won. But after, in the end, they lost their Islamic identity because as more and more Catholics came and Christians came, they weren't able to uphold it um, um, with this time and space. Uh, the next place you look at is in like the Maroons in Jamaica. They were Muslim who revolted, right? Even um, um, uh, Saint Louverture had a guy named Boukman, Many people have said that Boukman's name is only Lukman, which is a Muslim name, and Lukman was part of uh, Toussaint Louverture's revolution against the French. He actually has a prayer, and the prayer is an Islamic prayer. uh, It's very close to Islamic prayer that people have studied and stuff. Uh, Making it to Northern America, it's interesting because I have this philosophy I learned from brother. Black slave revolts in the South America and the Caribbean were more successful because the terrain was very similar to Africa. And the Muslims were able to do those things, along with other people, to fight back. When you get to North America, the terrain ain't the same. It ain't look like Africa. And so, black Africans had to fight another way. What I've come to realize is that Africans have used the tongue, the ability to speak, the ability to use the power of the tongue to rise people up. And if you look at, we have more, like from Malcolm to Dr. King, the 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 ability to use the tongue whether it's rapping or talking as a revolutionary power uh revolutionary weapon has been used by African Americans um, instead of South Americans and middle people in Central America. Um, I say that because one of the West African things that was brought to the Americas by West African Muslims is the griot. You know that's a French word, but the griot was the West African storyteller, and they played music and they told stories of revolution, of war, of standing up, of integrity. And everything was historic, and so the griot, so you know, the, you guys probably know this, the, um, the, uh, the movie um, uh, Lion King is based on Sunniyad Akita um, story of, of how Islam was spread in West Africa. So they actually, it's called the Epic of Mali, but those were West African Muslim griots who did it. And I mean to say it because when you look at the, 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 the African diaspora and how it grew, Islam either directly or indirectly been part of revolutionary movements um, in America. From the music point, I'll say that the um, blues music came from um, um, the sounds of West Africa were Islamic. Uh, there's a movie you might want to watch called uh, Another One: um, Daughters of the Dust, and it deals with the Gullah people in the Gullah Islands, and they have a guy named Belah in there. He's making prayer, making salat, and the sounds that they use come from the Muslims there. Two, when you look at the Gria, I was telling somebody the other day. The, the, the African, African peoples have gotten away going from now back in the past to the griot. The griot is somebody who tells uses his voice and sound to talk about our people, uprising us as a people, our history, everything. If you look at most rappers back in, 19, in the 80s when hip hop came out, that's what they wore. They were griots. Let's look at rappers today. Them niggas ain't griots. Pardon my English, right? What are they, right? Um, they are... The other people in history who told stories that made people laugh, entertain, that's the gesture. In Europe, the king had a gesture. His job was to clown and act a fool. These niggas is gestures. They're not griots. I'm trying to hold them accountable. Look, your West African tradition is to say something positive. When you start saying something negative, you still act like a European under the wrong thing. You are definitely 100% acting as you are uh, uh, what do you call A gesture. Um, uh, 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 so yeah. I said to you guys because that's how I differentiate the two. These are two people historically who entertain. One yeah. was for a purpose, one was for not. So you know, going with that, the, that's another aspect. Um, and I, I'll finish up. You need some questions? Just I'm trying to get it up. Yeah. Nah,
1: you are definitely touching on things that we 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 want you to um. Okay. Speak, speak on. I mean, I'm just time.
2: trying. To, I'm just giving. It, I can't. I mean, it's a long history. I'm trying to touch on some points that we have a discussion around. You know. Yeah. And um, so
1: so one of the points you made, you know it's it's dope to hear you talk about um, like you know this revolutionary history a revolutionary african history and how its connections um, to islam because as we've been learning more about you know the different pan africanists around the diaspora um and the and you know the role that they that they've played in our liberation and even here in the states we're starting to to understand that you know the principles of a revolution have direct connections to the principle of islam uh And can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Say it one more time. The principles of revolution in in Islam,
1: like the prince, we're starting to see that some of the guiding principles that you'll see through revolutions or through revolutionaries are also through these African revolutionaries are are guiding principles of Islam as well.
2: Yeah, I think well, the one thing that's a guiding principle of Islam is adl. Adl in Arabic means divine justice, right? And that it's funny because in the Arabic, in Arabic, the word adl means harmony too. Meaning when things are out of place it's justice that brings people back to balance right and so islam and and again when i say islam I mean all religions in the history have always sought to fight to bring justice and balance back to the universe or mm-hmm. to the world so i'll give you an example um what, what what's on the the the, the jewish flag
1: what's the star so- david
2: yeah, it's not the Star of David, though. That's what's the killer. Everybody thinks that.
1: Yeah, that's what I learned. I learned it as, yeah.
2: No, no, People don't hope that's what people will tell you. But yeah. um, what it is, is it's two pyramids, one pointing up and one pointing down. And it forms a Star of David. And the one pointing up means that man should be connected to God. The one pointing down is one that's, is created and connected to Earth. And balance in the universe, balance for the human being, is Zion. Zion is when you have this balance. You see what I'm mm-hmm. bro? And so we say all the prophets came at different times and people were off balance to bring divine justice. And it is the duty of a Muslim and our principles, going to your point, to fight to bring justice to the earth. Now, mm-hmm. that's Islam. Unfortunately, there are many Muslims who are not fighting for justice, and they themselves, whether it's Al-Qaeda and these terrorists and these extremists, they are bringing what do you call it, what I call um, extremism or they're bringing imbalance. And so the religion of Islam says bring balance, but many people in the religion of Christianity the essence of all the religions of the world is bring balance. Islam is saying if you want to be a true practitioner, you must fight for justice and balance. And when it's in balance, there's some Muslims who may be in balance. And we fight against so it's not just anti-muslim, it's, it's not just against people who are not Muslim, it's against anybody. So I tell people all the time is that it's like the Saudi Arabian government, right? If they're practicing they are they're practicing injustice, we Muslims should fight against them just because Muslims don't mean they're fighting for justice. So it's inherent upon us to break balance. And so when you see the African slave who came here, the thing that's in balance is he's a slave, he's a captain. So automatically, if you are captain, then it's an imbalance and it is your duty to fight for that justice to bring balance back to your personal and to the universe.
0: So one trend I've seen, you know, especially with with folks, you know, who was in the Black Panther Party, um, as well as the Black Liberation Army, and especially, you know, political prisoners um, of the BLA, um, a lot of them turned to Islam. So why do you think, uh, yeah, why do you think that happened? You know? Good uh,
2: question, good question. I would say, and, and I can't speak for all of them, I would love to ask them all, and it's funny, I was writing my dissertation on called The Pedagogy of Malcolm X, that Malcolm got a pedagogy, right? I think that Malcolm opened people's eyes to the religion of Islam outside of the nation of Islam. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and when Malcolm went and met the Mecca, because to me, Malcolm went to Mecca, Remember, he only lived 11 months before he was martyred. He, you know, and I think that when he was the nation, a lot of those people who became Muslim, they didn't feel the nation because the nation was really a cult that was non-Islamic, just using Islamic words. And it wasn't working collectively to make, you know, it wasn't, a, it really is not a revolutionary group, to be honest with you. It's a it's a separatist organization that tried to help black people and it had some good things with it, but it's not never was it never trying to, you know, uh, uh, create revolutionary movement any place, but within their own self. So when Malcolm left and got to Mecca and said, hey man, all of us together, different racial nationalities can work together and Islam was that principle guiding force that let him see the unity of all cultures and races and still work in the black context or African context, I think for a lot of people in the BLA and the BBP, but remember this, stuff, especially on the East Coast, most of you who became Muslims had an East Coast connection. Um, you know. And I think that Malcolm played a major force in letting him looking to the religion and seeing that you could be a practicing Muslim and simultaneously being an activist at the same time.
1: As we talk about El Hajj, Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X, um, can we talk about the the important role that he played on your spiritual understanding um and the impact that he had on your life?
2: Yeah, um I was introduced to Malcolm. You know, you know about Malcolm all your time, but when I say introduced, I really got into him. Maybe my junior year in high school and um I just started reading his autobiography and it was it's funny. I knew about the politics of Malcolm because I was always in the Black Nationalist Organization. But I just started reading Malcolm and looking at his spiritual journey. That's what touched me the most about him. That he went from thug criminal to reading books to becoming the nation. And every time he journeyed, then when he got to true Islam, and you know, in, in the book, in the not about the chapter called Mecca, he speaks about all the different cultures and races being one and unified one. And I was like, wow, you know, this is deep because I saw, through Malcolm he, he, he allowed, allowed him to help me in my journey to be somebody who connected my spiritual journey with my uh, political African activism. You know, and then I'll say the last thing that Malcolm did that is an Islamic concept um, that I think that we look at is he was martyred. And I think martyrdom plays a special part in Islam in the sense that, you know, when you're fighting for justice, it's better to die. I mean, you, you know, uh, fighting for justice and Malcolm gave his life after he became Muslim, and I think that that just you know his blood on his journey, you know, electrified me to look into what you know what would make his journey such. So, you know, Malcolm played a role in my life. You know, as far as being see myself as what I consider myself to be a spiritual soldier.
0: Yeah, and it's wild. Like the more I've been, you know, studying Malcolm, I, I, I've realized that. You know, in my opinion, a lot of his his spiritual transformation um, has kind of been erased in a lot of ways. And people will, um, you know, just talk about him as Malcolm X in the nation. Yeah. Rather yeah. than talk about his, his you know, his decision to leave the nation. You know what I mean? And, and you know, his, his pilgrimage. Right. Um, yeah. So wh- why do you think that is? Why do you think, you know, he's kind of put oftentimes into this false narrative box? Um, I, I, not the full Malcolm is yeah, talked about, you know?
2: Yeah. I, I Am I just observation of it? I think a lot of people don't know that Malcolm because it's not emphasized because it was the last, remember there's not as many speeches and talks in that last 11 months, you know, um, going to the United Nations. I think more non-Muslims understand that Malcolm in that time frame. But in this time and age, I think that the take, like a lot of people love Malcolm, but they don't want the spiritual Malcolm because they still may want to do and have some of the vices that they had before. And you know it's like if you want to be a revolutionary, then you know you can't fight a revolution, and you know you hide, you you know I'll tell, or you're entertaining. I told somebody the other day, I said we are the only people on the face of Earth that actually thinks that entertainers are supposed to be our leaders. No, no other race in humankind does that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, it's, like we're stupid. Like <laughs> I'm. Like, I'm waiting for Jay-Z or P. Diddy or somebody to tell me what the political agenda is. It's like, it's ridiculous. But I think it's by design in some ways to make those people that way. And the reason I mention it is because I think Malcolm, by design, is to be a, is somebody who you want to give to people that he's watered down. So when I look at One Night in Miami, that's horrible, man. They just make Malcolm a weak lean. And, you know, they got the – I don't know if y'all saw the movie, but they got Malcolm on the roof and Jim Brown and Sam Cooke and um, – What's the guy named? Um uh, Muhammad Ali yeah, are playing Moni in the middle. You know, they throwing the camp Malcolm running around back and forth, come on, man. So it's like to, to me to de-emphasize his spirituality is really to um secularize him to the point where you see him the way you want to see him. I feel that um I see him both ways. I want to see the just like the just like the star David, right? I want to see the Malcolm the, the the pyramid pointing up and I want to see a pyramid pointing down. I want the balance Malcolm.
1: Yeah. We, we got to look at folks in their totality, right? Like, even as you, this comes up a lot when we talk about the Panthers, like, they either get reduced by both sides, they either get reduced as a social group that wasn't about, that wasn't rooted in self-defense, or they get reduced to the gun-yielding black niggas wearing berets. You feel me? Like, you got to look at people in the totality to have the full analysis and the full impact.
2: Yeah. And that's what, but I think that's what Hollywood does.
1: Yeah, that's what mainstream media does to a T, right? And that's how you continue to well, get people to, to fall in, a, in, in line.
2: Man, it's, funny the say that. it's funny you say that because right now I'm dealing with Hollywood with some people trying to build stuff and I, I'll give you the 100 with you. I got to share with you a little bit about my project I'm doing. I'm not supposed to, but you know, I'll let y'all I'll keep it. I'm doing a project on the Black Panther Party in the 60s and um, the movement in the 60s. And the problem is I ain't nobody black I really can mess with because I part my English. These niggas don't know nothing about no revolutionary mentality of the 60s and white people participating and, and Asians and the Brown Berets, they, they they want to create the narrative of the Panthers, they want. And I'm like talking to real Panthers. Like I talked to Bobby Seale a lot, you know, I love Bobby, you know, he's my elder, you know what I'm saying? But he be giving me tidbits. I'm like, like, wow, like, like even I had ideas about the Panthers, but when you hear those real stories, like when you talk to Jaleel, you start to see a different picture of what Hollywood wants to do. My problem now is this. I can't blame white Hollywood because the black Negro person who's making the faulty movies. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of black directors and producers out there. They 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 don't they can make a better movie than they make. They white folks at some point can't be blamed when we choose to take our money and spend our money to make gesture like movies and gesture like rap songs and gesture like uh, content. There's too much. There's too many platforms out there, especially now, for us to continue to be book dancing and cooning.
1: I mean, but niggas trying to get the best of both worlds. Niggas want the luxuries. Exactly. You feel me? While simultaneously trying to push the the politic and anything you know about revolutionaries, they don't give a fuck about no luxury.
2: Hey, and guess what? That's why white folks in Hollywood are doing better because they don't care about the luxury. They they understand <laughs> they work right. They are like, like you don'ts. Like I said, you see white entertainers for supporting political activism. Black people want to be the political activists and the just at the same time. Like get, a choice is you gonna be a clown or you want to be the king? Which one is you? They trying to be both. They try to jump on this throne and after they entertain everybody. Don't work that way.
1: I mean, they want to be on the throne for for the for the lumping proletariat for the poor. <laughs> they want to rule the poor.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's the point. Is that they go from back and forth. Whereas if you look at the Jane Fonders and the Robert Redford's, you know what I'm saying? Like at some point, I see myself as being just. So if I see white people putting forth work, I gotta I gotta give love what love is up. Like they put forth, they put in work. When Yuri Kuchiyama, who's a Japanese, is trying to get Malcolm mouth, mouth, mouth to mouth, and she's still. Pushing forth the agenda of consciousness and helping people with different cultures and races, I got, I got, I recognize that. Yeah. I just think that today's generation, and if you keep real. I think that I always got this concept that hip hop died in 1996 on the corner of Coval and Flamingo, you know, and that's when they killed Tupac. Because to me, there's pre poc and post-Pac. You know, real hip hop was before and when he gone. Then you know, you got the the I mean, the, it becomes more jester than griot before it was more griot. Still had some gestures, but, you know, they were contained. Now, when we look at the struggle, you know, we look at where we're at now. Um, And I think a lot of it is based on history, not knowing the history of how we have devolved. And I think that we have devolved, not evolved, when it comes to understanding the necessities of what we as a people need to do. And that's part of my spirituality is to see things through the lens of justice.
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways, because it's like, how do we go? And of course, you know, when you understand COINTELPRO and the CIA and the FBI, it's like we went from the Black Power Movement to Black Lives Matter, like the Black Power Movement called for self-determination, independence, liberation, abolishment, emancipation. And now we've kind of had this, you know, we we have had this, you know, Black Lives Matter movement that's been very passive, in my opinion, you know what I mean? uh, It's been neoliberal and corporatized in some ways, but I don't know.
2: I don't even know if it's by design. All I can say is, you know, I taught a class. Like I'm, you, you and I when I taught a class on Malcolm and the African American History and Black Panther Party account, right? And I remember talking to I ain't gonna say his name because you know I ain't gonna put him on blast, right? <laughs> because one brother. He was like an activist, consider himself an activist. lot. I know you know him because he's like really, really, and I love him as a person, right? But then he didn't put the work in to be a scholar of the activism. It was almost like he just wanted to be known as a conscious person on Cal campus. I'm like. And I, told Amir, cause Amir, and I said, Amir, man, these your people, man. What's wrong with that brother, man? Amir said, nah, Hodge, he got a good talk. He talked a good game. And but I said, but I can look at his papers and what he was. He, he didn't even know certain things. But again, I think when I look back at it, this is my feeling, y'all. I'm not trying to be wrong or negative, right? A lot of the people who are really active in Black Lives Matter and doing stuff, they not really, quote, unquote, niggas. They're Africans. And that's not to say they don't suffer from what Black people suffer in America. But their connection to the diasporical struggle of ours is kind of, they don't get all the lessons. You know what I'm saying? And so sometimes, you know, when we talk about prisoners and niggas locked up in jail, they may, oh, yeah, it's wrong. But they ain't got no cousins who all been locked up in jail and all no crap, like, like like you know, and it's, it's a different experience. And so when you see things happening, like to me, when I look at Black Lives Matter, I say, wait a minute, everybody killed, the majority of people killed, other than Breonna Taylor, there's a couple of ellipses in there, the majority of you are killed by police is niggas. Not college cats, not college black people, not the bourgeois black And the majority of protesters ain't the people getting killed. So sometimes you lose the focus. Yeah, we want Black Lives Matter to help black people, but we're not identifying the real issue of young black males being killed and dealing with the reality why they're being killed. You know, why. And Black Lives Matter doesn't address that issue because if they did, it also point a finger at black intellectuals and the Black bourgeois not helping their own community. At some point, we're responsible to fix our community. And when you go back to the 60s, the Panthers didn't just talk about police brutality, they tried to fix the community. Malcolm didn't try to fix the community and and, and pointed out the issues. This group talks about the problem, but they have no solution for crime in Black communities like Chicago and the hood. So instead of just being a mantra, which has become and er make everybody happy, what is it about the fact that we need to get the community, us? And stop and fix it ourselves. That's my one of my issues, not knowing the history. Yeah,
1: hey, I mean these, you know these these black folks that have made themselves to face other Black Lives Matter movement just co opted real yeah. on the ground work that was being done by the poorest niggas in them hoods and Ferguson. There was you feel in me? The, A lot it, of them niggas exactly. ended up incarcerated. incarcerated. Up. A lot of them niggas ended we up You see here, You feel me, Darren
0: Seals, and you feel me. You saw Joshua still locked up to this day, but you don't have BLM talking about them, niggas. Nope. You see, exactly.
1: here, you see here in Oakland after, Nia's, after, Nia's, after Nia Wilson's murder, you feel me, being being killed by one of them crackers on a bar train. It was young niggas from, from the ghetto, Acorn, Deep East Oakland, the doves outside marching, and you get Libby Shab coming through talking. What the fuck you got to say about to us
2: exactly. about what,
1: what we doing out here?
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like I said, but you young brothers be in game. We got to, you know, we got to find ways. Think about all the money that Black Lives Matter has. My question is, how much is that money went to have a hood nigga in the street? You, down, man, like, I, I, you know, like I, I get it. I mean, I was telling you guys, watch the All Star game last night
1: Nah, I didn't get a chance to okay. watch
2: it. I was telling the mirror I said, Amir, man, the fix is in. He said, what you mean? I said, all oh, they pushes HBCU, black college, black My cousin college.
1: was talking about that shit. My cousin. like,
2: nigga, y'all gonna make me vomit on this shit, right? <laughs> First of all, let me be clear. I'm gonna be one hundred, right? I don't got nothing against a black college, but if you're pushing all black people to black colleges, then what you're saying is don't go to the PWI, the predominantly white institution that got all the fucking knowledge and all of the information, you know. So you're trying to get us not to go to some second-rate college, and I say second-rate in the sense of it does not have the resources of Harvard and Cal. So if you really want to help, don't give me scholarships. Why don't you put big money into Harvard so they can hire top professors, you know what I'm saying? And, they, and make it a research, like let's build the university, the university becomes a top tier university, not just send black people to a black college because it's going to be black, you know? And then black people may say, oh, I want to do a black college. Yeah, but you still you're still not even getting the the, the, the resources that white people, it's still separate and unequal. That's the point I'm making here. So it has to be two pronged. Yes, get black people to go to black college, but yes, at the same time, let's build a black college that it can compete with the Harvards and the, and the Howards and the Stanfords and stuff like that.
1: And so it can actually be a space for revolutionary learning. You feel me, like nigga going to a going to a a, a HBCU that's really just a PWI and in a mask
0: ain't ain't doing nobody no favor.
2: Hey hey, man, actually, all really to me, the black college really produces just more bourgeois negro.
0: I mean, shit. There's a reason why the CIA and the FBI be over there, and you feel me? They would be training this shit. And what, what do you get? A Kamala Harris, you feel me? Sending niggas to the gavel, nigga. And now she vice president, <laughs> doing drone strikes in Somalia and doing it with a smile. And an a k. They used to be revolution.
1: They used to be revolutionary spaces. Some of our niggas. You feel me? Think about
2: Stokely Carm- Carmichael. You feel me, niggas went there. Went. went. <laughs> My question is always that, that that the space. You're right because back then black people couldn't get to the PWIs. Yeah. We have to have a double prong approach that our kids should be striving and they can go to Howard or Harvard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think when we look at, well, guess what? I don't got to get all A's to go to Howard, so therefore I'm not striving. To me, education, like Malcolm said, is a passport to our future. And, you know, I was at UC Berkeley when we had the highest amount of black people at Cal. That's a fact, Right. And you know the wall is like I used to be yep. on the wall. I, I, that was my spot. i'd Big debate. I have two hundred people out there debating, just going off, sharing <laughs> knowledge. Now, that was my spot. Man. I love. Like, I like know me. I'm not cow of going off, debating people. But being at Berkeley, I'll be honest with you, the, the whites, the, the Asians, and everybody came to debate. Them motherfuckers was bringing knowledge too. Now you know it's like, hey man, it's like you know it, it was it was it was a challenge. Like let's do this. Like let's 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 let's, let's get this knowledge out. Let's kick it. Let's. Let's educate ourselves and the black people who came out of it in the you know, was phenomenal. The problem is when I look at Proposition 209 and all those things, they killed it. What kills me though is this, Proposition 16 don't pass, that could have fixed it. Hmm, interesting. So this state is supposed to be progressive and voted for their, the Democrats, but they didn't vote for Prop 16. That means that these people do not still, even if people who are laughing in our face, talking about, I mean, in our face, oh, black lives matter. If Black Lives Matter, the issue of 16 should have passed overwhelmingly easy to get black people back in colleges in California, because there is no black colleges here, you know what I'm saying, in order for us to get this higher education.
0: Come on. <laughs> Come on, this shit just evil to its root. And people want to talk about California. Oh, my God, y'all liberals and all this shit. And all Gavin Newsom. Like, bro, Gavin Newsom are yeah. racist. These Democrats is racist. All these voters, you feel me, By they votes is racist. <laughs> you know well, and that's the system
2: the black and, and you're right it's funny I think you made an extremely important point like, that if we really want to see what people are let's look at their voting record <laughs> you know you can't say you pro black and then you've not voted for things that are going to uplift the community and but again the problem is you get some black people who become what I call keepers of the gate they are the ones who are acting like they're progressive but in reality they just trying to get a check come on they just trying to eat you know yeah. You know, and they not they don't recognize the stuff. I mean, you know, I had I'm happy that Jalil got out, you know, and I know um, you know, Noah, I may mean, Allah have mercy on his soul, was martyred, you know, by keeping him incarcerated with one New York three. And then, you know, I can I, I kicked it with Herman Bale. Um, you know, that's my boy Kamel's father when he came out here to visit. So to see the New York three are free, that's a good move, right? Um, to a uh, to look at other african-American political prisoners getting freak I'm real cool with jihad abdul am who's over the jericho movement yep and I talked to him and you know and, and, and jihad is always striving to get people out but when I look at black lives matter city name city night well you ain't saying the political prisoners name you ain't saying nobody name. I mean, you know, with that I'm not mm-hmm. hearing that because they putting in work Russell Schultz has been in jail over 40 years right but you know we have to talk about their struggle because their struggle I mean technically I mean you know, I get that they were in a war and, you know, they, they went to war and, and things, people were hurt, and people were killed, but you got to understand the context. These kids now, they, if you forget about your political prisoners or even anybody who's been incarcerated, like right now they're talking about all the people incarcerated and in doing for marijuana cases, you know, wait a minute, hang on for a minute, like like now you're saying it's okay that that's not a case, but people still locked from jail, you know, let those people out, you know, incarceration in itself is such a demeaning, unhumanistic way, the way they have it going, that they have to find a way to say, let's try to get these people out. But at the same time, offer them something when they get out. I mean, are you going to give them reparations now that you you know, some dude went to jail, smoking some weed now. He all messed up with the jail experience. Now, you just going to say, are you free? No, you, you owe that person from humanity. And this is where I think Islam, going back to Islam, Islam is about justice. You know, you, these people are owed something to help them fix the imbalance that you put them in.
0: Yep so I know you had a a, you know a special and a close relationship with uh with Malcolm's grandson Malcolm Shabazz uh can you talk about how you was introduced to him and and what your relationship was like
2: yeah it was interesting um so you know in Islam uh you have two different persuasions which you know both I, I understand are Islamic one they say Sunni Muslims one say Shia Muslims right and so um you know I was became Shia Muslim, in like a Amir, meaning that Shia Muslim means one who follows the Prophet's family. Meaning that after the Prophet died, some people chose to follow the understanding of Islam through the companions. Some chose to follow through the family. Based on my understanding, what I, based on what I read and study, I follow the Prophet's family, which is a minority group. So I say that because what happened was um, a friend of mine who studied in Syria said he was in a bookstore in Syria and saw a black dude there. And there's a lot of black people overseas studying there in the bookstore. And they were just talking. He said, man, what's your name? He said, my name was Malcolm. He's like, oh, Malcolm. Yeah, Malcolm Shabazz. So my friend, who's a scholar who studied me overseas, like, are you Malcolm X. grandson? He said, yeah. And so they exchanged numbers and everything. He called me up and said, hey, man, you know, Malcolm's grandson is a um, Shia Muslim. You know, I am like, why are you studying in Syria? Oh, that's cool. Alhamdulillah. So I let it go. And then I looked on Facebook and I saw him on there. So I added him, right? And he added me, and that was it. So some time passed where he hit me up and said, Salaam alaikum, on Facebook, I'm like, well, I'm Salaam. And then we start chatting on Facebook and everything. And um, he got tired of Syria and he really needed, in his transition, he needed some help. And he said, man, I need a teacher to like, be, to be under, right? Like, you know, to study him. He said, can I, can you, can you help me? I was like, well, what you need me to do, bro? And it's funny, I remember my ex-wife, she was laying in the bed, I was on the computer next to the thing. He says, hey man, can I just come live with you? <laughs> And I said, yeah, I didn't even ask her. Said, oh, yeah, you. So he got him the first one smoking and came to live with me and my family um, in Miami, when I worked in Miami. And it's funny, because she was like, you just asked this dude you don't know to come live with us? I said, hey, man, it didn't make a difference, man. His grandfather's half the reason why you're sleeping in the bed next to me anyway, so, you know, so you, you can't really tell me nothing right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so he came, yeah, you know, he had his braids in his head, he had tattoos on, so he was coming out that gang, but, you know, gang, gang background and everything, but he's trying to get his dean tight. He told me how when he was in prison, he met somebody who gave him books on Shia Islam, and he's like, yo, man, this, and he felt it to be the more revolutionary of the two. I don't think that, I think there's some Sunnis who are revolutionary, but I think the vast majority who follow Sunni Islam um, that he had met were not very active, whereas he found in Shiism um, the concept of auditing justice that he found appealing. So he stayed with me, we build and everything, and um, then he got to a point where he was giving speeches and you know he was flying around doing stuff and we were in contact and he was trying to continue his father's legacy uh i actually have an autobiography that he wrote that i have on my computer that uh when he passed away it was murdered. i talked to his mother and i said i would not put it out without permission she doesn't want me to put it out so as of that i don't put it out but you know it just what i can't tell you it was called footsteps and the thing is he was trying to follow in his father's footsteps and everything uh, grandfather's footstep, and I guess he actually did because he was, um, you know, assassinated and murdered in um, Mexico City in 2013.
0: It was wild when I was doing, you know, just some research for this interview. Like, I- I'm seeing, you know, him go to Libya and be with Gaddafi at, like, Pan-African, you know, yes. uh, Pan-African <laughs> um, conference. Linking up with Nkrumah's grandkids. Ah, that's, that's yeah. Fire. yeah. Hey, you want to hear a funny
2: story about that? Yeah. Okay, and I'm just telling y'all because this ain't for this is something I heard. I know from somebody. Sort of so okay, I got popped to mind. I won't say his name. He was there, right? And um, he said when they got there, Malcolm, you know, he met a crew dark, Like it was beautiful. And you know, um, the only person Cadok met was Malcolm. Like Malcolm was the only because of his grandfather. Cadok brought him in to meet him. Nobody else. You know what I'm saying? Which is deep. So Malcolm was telling me he got there and he's at the conference and he saw this little cutie pie, right? He's like, man, you don't draw out the cutie pie and everything, right? So um, he was trying to talk to her and everything. And then he said, look at me later. And so my partner, who was with him, said, hey, man, uh, who she was? And she said she was the granddaughter of Shambay, right? And so he's like, oh, shit, Malcolm, you can't holler at her, right? And so um, he went to Malcolm and said, hey, Malcolm, man, that's you can't talk to her, man. That's Shambay's granddaughter. Like, who is Shambay? He said, you ain't? He said, your father said Shambay was the worst African ever made on Earth because he's the one who's part of killing Patrice Lumumba, right? <laughs> and so he's like, oh, man. I'm trying to hook up with, you know, he said, that'd be a media for fiasco, right? So he ended up not talking to her and everything, but it was interesting because not only was the Mumbas the people there and the Coomber's people, but they're also some of the grandchildren of some of the tyrants of Africa was there too.
0: That was a whole, I don't know what was going on there. Shit. <laughs>
2: There's a whole bunch of shit going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he but but he went there and he came back and he became politicized and he was doing a lot of positive stuff. But you know, he still was trying to fight and find the right like, like right now, if he was here, i would hug him up with y'all. He had to find the right people to get with. Um, he had some but, you know, um, he got with somebody who took him to Mexico, and he was on his way to Veracruz. Cruz and I'll just say it openly because you don't make a difference at this point. Now, he his goal was to go um, set up some stuff politically with the black people in the southern part of Mexico. And then he was supposed to, they were taking a ship over to Cuba to go get with Asada a secret meeting to go meet with his Sister Sada to help him get from her knowledge to bring back to. Him.
0: Man, so he just assassinated, clearly because of his political transformation.
2: I, I can say a uh, definitely political transition, but I can say that um, I cannot say, I can't say everything, but I can say that he was definitely consciously murdered. That is a fact. I mean, I buried. When he came back, I, I said, I bear you know, as Muslims, when somebody dies, you got to wash the body. And I had to wash his body. It's funny, I washed the body at Fouché's in Oakland, where little Bobby Hutton's body was, and, and George Jackson. It's funny that John, I mean, like all these people were killed, they all went to Fouché's because it's like the only, only black businesses around him. Um, I washed his body, and his head was beaten so bad that it looked like Emmett Till to the point where if he walked, if he walked, if he knocked on my door right now and said, man, how that really wasn't me, I would believe it, that's how bad they beat him, man. And, and, you know, killed him. You know, his eye was out and I mean, his head was all cut up and everything, it was crazy, man.
1: And it's, it's, it's something that I knew nothing about until I read uh, an article uh today, or mm-hmm. last night. And it's like, this shit is just not talked about at all.
2: Nah, and you know what though? I don't mention a lot of it because his mother has asked me not to until she yeah. feels comfortable. And because I would tell people out there, like, there's a lot of stuff out there. I just don't because you know she says something very. Malcolm X is my father. He was not a politician, and little Malcolm's my son. He is not some politician guy. And I have the respect. That's she sees her son. She don't see somebody 1, who, you know. Yeah. I got to I respect
1: that. Uh we, we wanted to talk about another um, young cat that you had a relationship with. Um, Tupac so you know how, how did y'all meet and how did y'all relationship wow. develop over the years
2: good question well I was at this point it's funny because I'm dealing with a, a situation now that brings my past full circle but um I'm helping out doing a, 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 something with Tupac's estate working together on some projects and I'll tell you more about it later and I'm doing some grassroots stuff and I'm working with a lot of people who don't know Pac and so sometimes I usually don't talk about our relationship with Pac because you know the dynamics of, I don't know the Pac that everybody else knows because I knew him when he was just a youngin. I, I didn't know he's gonna be famous. Even though, I mean, I didn't know how famous he'd be. I knew he'd be a good rapper. I told him I was a dude. you pretty dope. But what happened was, and this is a weird story, I was the president of Black Student Union at Cal. Actually, I was the last. If I don't know if you know this, but there has not been a Black Student Union since 1991 when I was president. And there's been the organization, like the thing, what's the thing you work at, with Z and all that? um, AASD. Yeah, that's been around, but that is connected. I'm talking about an independent Black study organization, right, and we actually changed the name. It was the Black BSU. When I became president, I changed it to the Organization of African Students um, because I wanted to parallel to Malcolm and say, look, man, we don't connect with the African diaspora, then we're shorting ourselves. We changed the name, did a whole bunch of activities. So one of the things I did is I brought Kairos one speaking, to speak in right? He said, got to do a pocket, you'll see. So it's like, I invited him to come speak. Sold out. Charged everybody, 400 people. Cause This is 1989, right? 90. He's like dropping knowledge. So he says in the speech about pimping, about what pimping is. He said, pimping is the fact that I've had the guy pay me the money to speak to y'all when I should have spoke to you for free. So this nigga called me a hoe. He said, so I pimped you. I pimped the president. I'm like, man, fuck that. Man. That's not right. Man. Right? So I'm hot. So afterwards, <laughs> I'm walking down. Uh, what's this thing called Sprout Plaza, right? And I'm t- me and him arguing. He got his crew, and I got my crew. Like nigga, what's up, nigga, you know, yada yada. We get to there's a cafe called Cafe Milano. His car was parked, the van was parked in the Cafe Milano. So I'm about to fire this nigga. My cousin, my yeah, give nigga what's up, nigga, one. ain't no pimps out here, yada yada. Just you know, I got all these Oakland Richmond niggas with me. So he they jump in the car, they take off. Cause it's like they ain't no fuckbone. So I am my my, my my fiance who was at the time. She said, Yeah. One of Chris's guys who was with him gave me two free tickets to the concert. So now I'm hot, like all oh, now these niggas getting at my girl. Like, I'm like, this <laughs> you know, like, this, this ain't happening, man. So I'm steep. So I tell my cousin, he's I don't know, you're me, you're on P7, right? So I go and say, look, man, check it out, man. I ain't gonna kill nobody or some bullshit, but we gonna fuck their money up, part of my English. So we're gonna go down to the Berkeley Community Center and let's shoot up the shit, you know what I'm saying? Shoot some guns up in the air and everything, police come and shit like that, and they'll cancel the thing. We don't want to buy something right? Boom, so you roll up there and everything. This is me being some crazy, you know, shit that I did back in the day, right? We roll <laughs> up, I'm not gonna do it. I knock on the door, I so I'm gonna get this nigga one more check. I knock on the door, boom, boom. I said, Chris here, and it's all of you waiting outside. So I'm like, hey, you can have a fucking air in your holla I'm gonna do what you put on. So all of a sudden, Jamal, I don't know if you heard a rapper named Jamal Ski, right? But Jamal was a reggae rapper. I knew him Berkeley, who worked with Chris. So he rapped. He opened up the prayer What? Well. So he come out, Hosh, What's up, dude? Yadi yada, yadi. And so talking to that. So he go back and, and squat. Could they see that? I said. I said, look, Ray. Either this thing you need to holler, or we gonna, we we got some gas. We gonna, it's gonna be a mess. Ain't nobody gonna eat tonight, right? So my bad, Hosh, Misunderstanding. Because you know when you mess with somebody, money they change up. They talk. You know what I'm saying? So fighting him was important. Messing up the money, he took that different. So, but as I'm talking to him, there's this dude, he got a beanie pulled over his head, smoking a cigarette. So he's hey man, we're smooth. What's the problem? I told him about what happened. I'm president of black students. He says, yo, dude, I love to speak of a cow one time, man. You know, I'm into the black stuff too. I'm like, you all? He said, yeah, well, all right, cool. So I take his card, I look at his car, don't recognize the name. And then he leave, he jump in a Ferrari pull off in the Ferrari. I'm like, dang, that nigga must have some money. And he pulled off of the Ferrari. You know what I'm saying? I looked at the name, I don't know who it is, because you know, I'm in, mean, you know, I'm only in a certain hip hop. Come full circle. I got a friend named Dr. Ellenstein who sells concepts. He had a concept. He was selling. So I was on Sprawl with him. He said, the dude who's buying the concept is coming to meet me. It's the same guy I seemed to have on. And the guy's name is Greg Jacobs. You guys know who Greg Jacobs is? No, I don't. Nah. You know about his rap name. His net rap name is Shock G. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was Humpty up. So this was the leader of Digital Underground who buying this concept. So he bought the concept, Sons of the Pete. And he said, yo, man, Hosh, you know, it's like really black pop, politics and stuff. Can you do me a favor? I said, what? He said, man, I'd love you to come to the studio and just sit with me behind and watch me make this album and just listen to it and tell me. He said, because you're not a rapper, I want to hear real ears from the people and this is touching the people and everything. I'm like, all right, cool. Where's the studio at? Said, man, the studio's on 13th and Cutting. I'm like, what? My family grew up on 4th and Cutting in Richmond, right? Right? Starlight Studios is right there. So like, around the corner, so... I started coming to the studio with shock and that's how I met pot. And he was just a young dude making two clips now. Um, but what happened was my cousins, my people, Pee Wee, all these people I knew from Richmond, they was in the studio. So I came with shock, but I also knew everybody else. And then Dion, and got had mercy. So Dion Evans, you can look at Big D, um, DJ Impossible. He worked in unit three cooking food at Cal. And he was, you know, he never had a car. So when I left Cal from school, I would take him to pot session. So... I was trust because since I was shot guy, I can go to every session. So I went to park sessions and, you know, from there I just got to spend time with a young and up and coming guy, you know, you know, uh, saw the making of the uh, Tupac. Matter of fact, when a mastered at rocket studio, I had to take Dion. There was only three people in that room, two people alive, me and the, and the engineer Pac and Dion both did. And that's when he mastered Tupac Now I always still so honored. Uh, that I was there when he mastered Tupac now. And, uh, but he did a lot for me. Like, I would mentor my basketball team. I'd bring him to the studio. He'd let him go get tutored. And, you know, he was definitely somebody who was a Panther Cub. And it's funny, I tell people all the time is that, you know, I had some beads around my neck. And in Arabic, they're called thicker beads. And he said, Hosh, what you know them big, thicker beads on your neck? I'm like, what you know about thicker beads? And he said, man, I'm Muslim. And he recited all his prayers in Arabic to me on the microphone. I was like, all right, man. My, my bad. My fault. I mean, I didn't know his background was Matulu Shakur, who's a Muslim, and all those people. But, you know, he was raised in a Muslim household with the Shakur family. That included Zaid Malik Shakur, who's was a martyr, Lohman, Shakur, who was martyr. And they went back to an organization called the Deen Al-Lahi, um, um, where um, Baba Salah Hideen Shakur was the father. So he came out of a, a Muslim background, raised a Muslim kid. Obviously, his practice is not a practice, you know, of, um, you know, to the end of his life. That was, you know, was Islamic, but he still did not make him not a Muslim. And you can see and hear a lot of the Muslim um themes and words that formulate back to his Islam. You know, and even Gaddafi, who was killed, Gaddafi's father his brother is who was a Muslim who was incarcerated. And may Alhamdulillah, he's been free.
1: And man, my nigga Pac says, saying, fuck all y'all niggas in Swahili. Like you know that nigga got some. Yeah. He has some of that shit in him. Uh, I, I know for a fact.
2: Yeah. But I think his—he remember—he came out of a tradition. I mean, there's pictures in the book of him wearing kufis and and knowing stuff. Uh, you know, we were in this truth about Tupac uh, thing with Clubhouse me in the mirror, and you know, Mirror did a good breakdown of you know why he has the cross on and all that stuff. He has the cross on because he said niggas is crucifying me. He said to me they be crucifying niggas. Ain't. He's equating himself with being crucified, and everybody thought he was re- referring Jesus. He's referring himself. And if you listen to the album, the song Blasphemy, he's putting. Christianity on blast and blast, not Christians who love Jesus and who are revolutionary, but the concept that Christianity has certain moral concept in Western Christianity that has been used to oppress African peoples.
0: So you know, how how do you think Pac would have used his celebrity and his platform? You know, during this era of uh, uh, police terrorism that we in, you know, so if he was making music today, uh, mm-hmm. what kind of songs do you think he would have
2: made? I'll say the same songs he made. He never changed. I mean. From Tupac Clips Now, it's funny, Tupac Clips Now is all about police I mean, part of the theme is police brutality. He's always talking about police brutality in 1996. So when I hear people talking about police brutality. I'm like, duh. Like, this was in hip-hop back in the day. Um, I think he would continue his thing. The biggest difference, I believe, from me knowing Pac personally and his conduct and one thing he was always true to that I don't think he'd be different is he'd be putting niggas on blast right now. Jay-Z be put on blast. So I'm telling you, yeah, he, 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 he was doing it. And he You thought hit him up was bad? Oh, he'd be on these niggas' heads so hard. Man. So so why do you think,
0: you know, Pac, especially, you know, was one of the only mainstream rap artists, hip-hop artists, you know, to really honor political prisoners? You know, why do why well, you think he was the only one?
2: Um, I think that... He, because they're part of his family. You got to remember, Gerard. Everybody he's shouting out is somehow connect. He's connected tribally to them. You know, to me, the Shakur family is not a blood tribe. It's a, it's an activist tribe. You know, because Sada don't got blood with them. Mutulu don't got blood with them. You know what I'm saying? But they're a tribe, and in that tribe, they look out for each other. You know, and I think that for him, you know, his family, they knew everybody's cases. They, they shouting out everybody who was, you know, um, family. So I say this not just about him, but. He is somebody who is an activist who became a rapper. And so you see that in his art. There are a lot of artists who are trying to become rappers, and you can see the difference. So to me, the other artist that I love to hear his stuff is um, J, Brother J. I think Brother J is one of the best lyrics ever to me. I love Brother J, right? But, you know, I talked to Brother J. Remember, Brother J belonged to an organization called Black Watch, and then he became a rapper. And so when you look at people who are coming out of activism, it just, it, it's just part of what came with them. And that's why I don't think they would change, because it's it's part of their makeup.
1: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you a question, because I, I work in music as a manager, and I'm interested in um, hearing how you've been able to help politicize, you know, musicians who don't have the radical upbringing that a Pac has had.
2: I would say the same way. It's funny. Um, I get, I, well, I'll say this with radical knowledge, man. I just give people books and have conversations with them, because, you know, I was talking to Boots one time, Riley, from right? And me and Boots, said, I oh, don't know, we just happened to be, meet up at a, a restaurant We'd see once together. And I said, hey, man, you know, this rap music, this stuff is foul. He said, man, be honest with you, it's the culture that's foul. So what do you mean? He says, most rappers rap about what's going on in culture. There is no movement of the culture, therefore you don't see it reflected in the music, maybe here and there. When hip, when the movement, when, when people are, when the people are radical conscious, then you'll see consciousness coming out as, as a majority. And so I think that when you have artists today, the best thing we can do with the artists today is continue to try to get them to be conscious. You know, I don't want to use the word radical because I think you can be conscious and not radical. And I think that radical radicalism for many people comes out of consciousness. Conscious yeah. is knowing the self, knowing who you are, the person. And then you you start to to filter that out of who you are. And so I think that one of the things is just talking to them about their consciousness of themselves, but also they to be conscious about the uh, what do you call it, the atmosphere around them. The hard part, I think, for a lot of entertainers is, is the money, you know? It's like, man, I want to be an entertainer, and Like I said, maybe I'm coming up, you know, I just came up with this griot uh, gesture thing for a talk the other day. I think maybe that's what we do. We always ask our artists, man, which one are you going to be? And explain the difference between both of them. Let them figure out which one they are.
1: That's real shit, I appreciate that.
2: You're, he's a rapper or a girl rapper or
1: something? Um, I, I work with like, yeah, like four rappers.
2: Okay. Yeah. In the Bay
1: Area? Yeah, they all from the town.
2: Oh, that's good. Well, I think if you look at most rappers from the towns, there is no way for town rappers not to be conscious at some point. They know got I mean?
1: it, they got it in them, you feel me? But it's like you now know. it's trying to take that next step. You feel I me? I like, mean they be, they even, the, even, the, yeah.
2: even the thug rappers who are black, they, you got it in them. You know what I'm saying? Like I can yeah, tell yeah. It, but to me, one of the best rappers I love, and it's funny because I buried his had his funeral at the Moscow Runover, over, and it was packed. It was like 800 people a week was the jacket. like I, did the, I buried the jacket, man. That was incredible, like right? that, right there. That, that was a heck of an experience, man. Um, because, you know, the jacket was street, but he still, in his lyrics, you find consciousness and, and, and trying to keep everybody, you know, keep it 100. Yep. You know, so the Bay Area always got somebody, because it's part of our blood vein, man. We we bleed, we bleed activism, man. It's as far So, can,
0: can you talk a little bit, um, about the role of, of African women in Hajj, at Hajj, yep,
2: yeah. Um, I tell you all the time is that. So when I went when I ask people how many times Muslims, how many times you go around the Kaaba at Mecca at Hajj, and they say seven times. I'm like, mm, yes, but no. Is it? What do you mean? Because there's a thing. If you ever look at a picture of the Kaaba, it's a black box. Next to it, there is a semicircle, semicircle right, or, or structure. And it's not high, it's low, but in between that semi-structure and the Kaaba is buried Hajj. And Ismail. and according to the Bible, um, Hajar is the Egyptian wife of Abraham, and so she's the African wife of Abraham who is buried there. And so when Muslims pray five times a day towards Mecca, we're actually also praying. Our a billion people are bowing towards this African woman who is buried. You know what I'm saying? Um, at the next to the Kaaba. So Ali Shariati, who was a very very prominent Iranian uh, revolutionary, he wrote a book on Hajj where he gives a beautiful explanation how um, Hajar is a black African slave woman and how God humbles every person. I mean, humbles all those to bow towards her grave, to remind you that the person that you despise the most, this black African slave woman uh, uh, who came from a slave background, she is honored by God and Allah brings her and lifts her up and buries her next to his house where no other woman can have that. No other woman but this African woman is buried at the house of Allah. Most people don't even notice, even Muslims. So, you know, it's interesting. A second thing is, you know, what African women is in Iran for Shias, we believe that there are 12 Imams who follow the, that are leaders of the Prophet Muhammad's family. Well, there are Arabs, which are people of color too, but from the 60 mom on, the majority of the mothers were Nubians, really dark, right? And so these are African women, so uh, men and women. So in Qum, where I studied in Iran, in the city, there's a shrine, of uh, Fatima. So man, if you look at the word Kun, Q U Q O M, and look, shrine comb, you'll see this beautiful golden shrine. Well, the woman buried under there is an African black woman. And everybody comes to her and they, has, they go to her for miracles. And they pray. And she does with shafa. They don't pray to her like she's God. We as Muslims believe there's a concept called intercession where the people, they're not dead. Their spirit has a way of connecting with you. But um, that's a theological uh, conversation. But from a practical conversation of just looking at it, there's no bigger shrine for an African woman on the face of the earth except that one Kum.
1: Yeah, this is this is definitely some shit that I need to look into. I have like a very yeah, baseline. I'm gonna say baseline. Yeah, this is definitely some shit You that can't, I need hey, to more don't about. call
2: it baseline. I just told <laughs> you stuff that most Muslims, that 95% of the Muslim world. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> right for so. baseline. I'm just lacing. I'm just lacing, you're making us all this, you know? I'm so going I'm gaining knowledge to get a cast so y'all can share somebody else. You know, I tell people all the time that, look, man, like, like this African diaspora man is worldwide, and when we start connecting dots, I mean, they say this a oh, lot. No, best is true. They say they somehow dug up and made a mistake and dug up the grave and found five preserved African women buried underneath the shrine.
1: And I think this is just a the the result of something that we wanted to talk about anyway. I, like my understanding of of Islam has has been pushed through the mass propaganda machine that is at its root. I know since it, since it is pro fucking um, neo-colonialism. It now, has to be anti-Islam, uh, right? And so with that, my understanding of Islam has been completely like this, like it's been Middle Easternized, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yes, 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 yes. Connections yeah, yeah, yeah. to Africa. Uh, no,
2: hey, tell you what, let me ask you a question. Here's a deep question, just look at it. I agree with you, and part of that problem is that a lot of African Muslims, kind I study a lot about, look, from more science temple to the nation Islam, we Muslim African Americans. Remember, when I talked earlier, it was about African Muslims. When African Americans mm-hmm. kind of amalgamate uh, uh, into the American society and you lose your Islam, it comes back with Noble Drew It comes back with Nation Islam, and so in many ways, that's heterodox Islam. Meaning that it's not pure Islam. It's a it's a amalgamation of a lot of different things. And so we, as African peoples in America, we're going from heterodox to orthodox. <laughs> Everybody else is going from orthodox to hetero. Like they're and so you're getting the, the 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 immigrant who's saying what the hell he want to say, not realizing that the majority of Muslims in America are African Americans.
1: And you wouldn't think that they, they oh. like, you would oh. not, not the way that it's been presented to
0: us. I mean, no. in the first the first Muslims in this country were black.
2: Yeah, right. exactly. No, well, you got to remember, we have proof. Um, there's a lot of books by Ivan Van Sitterman that Muslim Af- African Muslim slaves were in African Muslims were in America before Columbus even came. And I give you an example. I was watching this movie, West Africa. And like a lot of different weird movies and you know, the little bees, right? So there's two people and they fighting each other with prayers to God. So one person prays and he says, let it rain. And the other person prays, you know, it's like a little comedy thing, but they're going back and forth. But there were some white people on the bus. The white people say, yes, we're here doing research on Abu Bakr the third, an West African who sent Africans to America in like 1200. 400 years, 200 years before Columbus. So apparently I looked it up. It was in a movie, but I looked it up. So Albuquerque III believed there was black people. I mean, I mean, he, went to, he was an explorer. He made three giant ships and sailed away from um, West Africa and they came to the mirror. Facts. History. White people know it. Niggas don't know. We was here before Columbus.
0: <laughs> I mean, should it make sense if you see like the skin color <laughs> of folks? You feel me? Like,
2: Well, look at this though. So... I don't know you guys know um Nunez. He was the guy. The so even after that, um, I was in, I was working with this one kid trying to get to the NBA. They put me up in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Merritt Hotel, like some resort. I'm just walking around the hotel and I'm looking at the history of Arizona. And they talk about a Muslim guy, Muhammad Zamuri. He's the one who discovered Phoenix, Arizona. I mean, Arizona. I'm like, what is this? I've never known this. So I find in a hotel room, right? And apparently what happened was um, he was on a shipwreck with, um, um, in, in um, Florida with Nunez. I forgot Nunes, the Bach or something like that. And they traveled and he knew multiple languages and he traveled all the way across like basically the I-10 to Arizona and then he in- integrated his life with the Native Americans and he became part of the Native Americans and stuff like that. But he was an African, Moorish Muslim who was on the ships. you know, Sir Francis Drake, it said that when he traveled, a bunch of Muslims jumped off the ship with him in South Carolina. Here, here's one for you, Black, you know. You know Anderson Cooper, right?
0: The that white news host,
2: right? The CNN, yeah. So yeah. you know who his, you know who his mother is?
0: Nah. Was or his she mother, like a slave owner or some shit?
2: Well, I or... don't know. She was a Vanderbilt, one of the richest families in American history. Vanderbilt University is based on her family, Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but the Vanderbilts are descendants of a family um, who I forgot the names. They ain't race Jahoon, I think. They came to America before even America was started, and they were Dutch. And he was a Dutchman who went to Morocco. Married African slave, married African woman, and had children. So he had these half um, Moroccan. and He became Muslim himself. He had he was a pirate. He became and he had these half Moroccan, half um, European babies, and they came to what's called New York City and settled in New York City. And they brought the Quran. They were Muslim. So you know, even outside the African, I mean, through the African Moorish diaspora, uh, West African diaspora, Muslims have been in America even before the slaves came. If we just want to keep it one hundred, yeah.
0: So can you talk a little bit more, um, you know, about the the intersection of anti-Black racism um, and Islamophobia?
2: You know, I don't believe in Islamophobia personally. I'm just keeping 100 with you. And that's because Islamophobia is a concept of people being scared of Islam. And Islamophobia is is birthed out of immigrant Muslims. So I always say to immigrant Muslims, I mean, I'm not hearing that shit because we was niggas getting oppressed by being Muslim before you came here. So don't all of a sudden make up some new stuff. Because now y'all being attacked by the police or y'all being attacked and discriminated against, you know, because they use it to say, oh, look, now all of a sudden Muslims are being attacked. Malcolm was a Muslim, he was attacked. Jaleel was a Muslim being attacked. He ain't say nothing about that. So I'll say to you that when I look at Islamophobia, I don't look at it from the lens of how it's seen now. I look at it from the scene of that African Muslims have been persecuted, you know, um, in America for their activism for a long time, you know, since America. Um, as far as anti-blackness, I think that again, I'm gonna say, it. I think anti-blackness and anti is just like anti phobia. It's something new. <clears throat> it's a new generation trying to contextualize and find a word for their movement. And I believe that those dynamics are disunifying people, not unifying. I told somebody the other day, I said, "Look, I don't believe in. I believe in identity politics when it calls unity, not disunity. A lot of identity politics today is just separating people. It should be unifying people." And so when Islamophobia and anti-blackness, I see them as being more, um, the way they're being contextualized and used in society is being like, well, I'm over here. you over here. You're an ally on this. How do we, you know, say let's just work together? No, I need a comrade. A comrade is somebody different. A comrade is somebody who's rolling with you, regardless of your color. They understand their place in the movement, but they're comrades in the moment.
0: Yeah. No, thanks for that distinction. Um, so during Friday prayer, which is called Juma, uh, you lead service at a mosque in Oakland. Um, can you explain how social justice and Islam um, come together as you give your sermon? And also, you know, I heard that you have a, a symbolic weapon with you as you lead, lead prayer. Uh, oh, can you explain why?
2: That's not even symbolic. It's, it's real. Are you you <laughs> keep I want somebody's ass with it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I tell you, I'm, look, I'm looking at it right now. I'm, I, <laughs> the, the Prophet Muhammad would carry a weapon or a stick or something like that when they gave the kutbah, right? So, when I give my sermon, I have a katana, a Japanese wooden sword. You know, which is, I'm not doing it symbolically because I can knock somebody out with it if they get out of line, right? Actually, be, before I was, somebody, white boy was honking at me crazy one time. And I, you know, I got a lot of help me. I got to get angry when white people do stuff sometimes, even I should let it go. But sometimes I'm like, nah, man, this this is for Emmett right? I got to stand up for you. got to
1: Straight <laughs> so up, though.
2: He, he, he point, he honking a horn at me. You know, because white folks are honking, like, get out the way, get out the way. And I just stopped my car. He looked, he got me and he uh stopped his car. I was like, what you gonna do? And you you honking now you whore now, probably be whore. So I carried my katana in the car. So I took out my wooden store and went to his car, about to break his window real quick, right? And he's like, I'm sorry, man. He started like, crying, hey man, you know, so it's a real weapon.
0: They always play, they always play victim.
2: What pox say he said niggas love to treat peace after they start some shit. <laughs> but so that's one part of carrying the katana. But in the in the Juma clipball. It is recommended and told that we should the first part is dealing with religious issues pertaining into like belief and faith but the second part so then after that's done the the leader sits down takes a break and he stands up for the second part but the second part should be something to do with social political issues of what's going on in the world and so every time you come to the prayer you're going to get the spiritual part dealing with your faith and building that in. but the second part has to be dealt with community building social activism Locally or globally, that informs the, the community that when they leave, there's something to do. Always a call to action? Always a call to action. One both of them are called action. One is a spiritual call to action, and the one is a material call to action. It's interesting because you know, when the Muslims were at a um, jihad, right? Which is unfortunate, people always say jihad is holy war. It's not holy war. Jihad means holy striving. So you know, if you're trying to get a job, that's jihad. You know what I'm saying? Jihad is when you're striving, but jihad can be used um, when it comes to a physical struggle too. And so, when the Muslims were coming back from the from a the physical struggle of a war, having that jihad, the Prophet Muhammad said, "We are leaving the lesser jihad for the greater jihad." And they're like, "Y'all, are messenger of Allah, what is the difference?" He said, "The greater jihad is not the fight against people in the war, but it's the fight against yourself, your lower self, to make yourself a better person." That is the greatest jihad and struggle that each human being should be doing. And we said because if a person is not fighting with an energy on, their external jihad will be false. So when I look at ISIS and I look at uh, 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 Al Qaeda and Muslim extremists, they have no energy jihad. That's why their outer jihad is false. Because then their souls aren't pure or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add before, you know?
2: Yeah, love the chopping call. up with y'all, man. It was fun. I'm fasting today, so I forgot I'm feeling hungry and everything. I, you know, I have some <laughs> Mondays and Thursdays, but, you know, anytime you guys want to chicken or uh, chopping up and get some information about Islam or anything, you know, we have a saying. If I speak Farsi, it's Shamaha style, which means I'm at your service. So anything you need, you want to kick up books, because, I mean, there's a lot we can talk about and everything, but I'm really impressed that you young brothers are striving and struggling. You know, don't stop till the casket drops. So keep it going, man. Appreciate
1: true
0: we all gotta uh, break bread together, you feel me? Me, you, Lef, and Delancey, we all gotta, you know, once conditions get a little better, you feel me? Yes, I'll, sir, I'll Go get some bread. food and, and chop it up. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm trying to, like, me personally right now, like, I'm on this, I ain't eating no meat, I'm a little, laying low on my meat and everything, because I'm 54, so, you know, my stomach don't digest it like I used to, you know what I mean? saying? <laughs> so, you know, but I look forward to, uh, you know, it's a West African spot, find something, get some Persian food, but, you know, I, I, I look forward to breaking bread because, it's funny, here, I'll end with this an Islamic concept, right? Uh, as Muslims, we have things that are considered haram you can't do, and there's something else called makru, meaning that you can do it, but it's not advisable to do it, right? One of the things for Muslims that you shouldn't do is eat sliced bread. Ain't that interesting?
1: Yeah, y'all, I don't know, y'all might have lost Y'all almost had me. <laughs> y'all, y'all almost had me. All
2: right, watch this, though. What did Blade just say to me? We gotta do what, buddy? Break bread. What does that come from?
1: I'm sure Islam or some African Yeah, shit. the Middle
2: East, because you yeah. don't, they, they, they didn't have sliced bread there. They broke bread. Okay. The concept of the breaking bread is that you break bread as friendship. It, 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 there, there, there is a communal aspect in breaking bread when you eat. So when you take the piece of bread, you break it off and you hand it. So when I was in Africa, I noticed people broke bread. Whereas with sliced bread, you know what I'm saying, you just grab your own and eat it. But the breaking bread concept is a communal aspect, that I think that's beautiful. Not that I don't eat sliced bread, I'm just saying that I like to see the beauty that within Islamic context and African concepts is that even our eating is about building.
0: Yeah. Man, that's that's a great way to end it. (laughs) We just
2: broke bread and we had that need, follow.
1: And and also um just to reiterate the the same shit that you said earlier, but of course if there's anything that we can do to to support you, you know that that door open both ways. Um appreciate that building building what our OGs is is something that we've always centered but i think even more so now is as we're getting older and we having to mentor people we realizing the, the power of mentorship and, and needing to get our information directly from the source and so yeah any anytime anything we could do please let us know
2: for sure alluded uh, i in like hey i mean malcolm x never said goodbye to nobody and i always want to use what he said he says till we meet again